open up to Luke chapter 18. Please stand as I read Luke 18, starting at verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Now, to bring back in a little context here before we look at these couple of verses. The rich young ruler has left Jesus and he's returned to his riches. Jesus exhorted him and he's returned back to his riches. The disciples are left to think through what Jesus has just said to that rich man. And... And they're they're also left to think through the rich man's response to Jesus' exhortation to sell all he owns, to give the proceeds to the poor, and then to follow Jesus. Jesus, looking at the man, you remember, said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we sort of, we know those verses, right? They're sort of still a part of even our culture. The camel and the eye of the needle and the difficulty of the rich man. Now, in response to that statement, the disciples are scratching their heads. They, they ask Jesus, then who can be saved? And Jesus responds with those wonderful words about his power and grace and salvation. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And we say, yea and amen. God saves. God works. God can even change the heart of a rich man with, with a lot of property. He can change that man. God can radically change a man. He, made, uh, he makes idolaters worship the one true living God. He, he makes a hateful man, like the Apostle Paul, gentle. He makes, he makes people tempted by same-sex unions, chaste. And all of that comes by the radical change of the new birth of regeneration, which is, which is whose work? It's God's work, and it's impossible for man, but it's possible for God. Now, the disciples continue to reflect on Jesus' words, and the apostle Peter makes a statement about himself and the other disciples of Jesus. He says, Behold, we have left our homes. We have left our own, literally. You notice that that that, that word, homes, is in italics in your New American Standard Bible. And so anything that's in italics in the New American Standard Bible means it's not there in the Greek. It's added because of context. And so um, sometimes it has to be there because of the English language and the Greek sentence wouldn't make sense. Sometimes it's, it's an added interpretation. Here it's, it's unnecessary. 
it's it's just unnecessary. I don't know why they they did that. Um, we have left our own and followed you. We have left what we had. We've left our own and we've followed you. And that in, that that includes you know it could be referring to leaving a house or leaving a home or a household, but it. it it's referring to anything else that the, the apostles left behind, including their vocations, including their, you know, the livelihood, including their families, including their property, including their homes, their loved ones, all those things. Peter is making a statement about having left everything behind to follow Jesus. Now, what do we know about Peter? You may be thinking that Peter... Well, he hasn't left behind much. He's a poor fisherman. It's not the rich young ruler. It's not the, he doesn't have much property. Um, so, you know, it's like Peter didn't really leave that much behind. But even the poor man thinks that what he has is precious, right? Even the poor man thinks that what he has is all he has and that it's important to him. And so take a cardboard box away from a homeless man and his world is rocked. You've taken away everything that was precious to him, everything that gave him the same comforts that you have in a, in a home. His wealth is gone. So Peter the fisherman, Peter the homeowner, Peter the husband, he was married. Peter the caretaker of his mother-in-law. Remember that when, when Jesus came to Peter's house, his mother-in-law was there and Jesus healed her of that fever. And so Peter is all these things, and he states that, that he has done what the rich man was unwilling to do. He's left what was precious to him, and he's followed Jesus. Peter was called by Jesus to follow him. He and the other disciples did what the rich young ruler was unwilling to do. Okay, now, what's the general principle that we can pull out of this? Is this a call for as it has been used in past ages of the church, a call for monasticism and asceticism, right? The, the getting off by yourself, um, giving up everything that's precious to you, material goods and family. In other words, is this what Jesus is talking about? Give up everything that's precious to you, take vows of poverty, live in a monastery, and get... Um, and if you don't, you cannot follow him. Um, that is what uh, used to be defined as the first-rate followers of Jesus, right? The first tier, taking vows of poverty, vows of celibacy, moving away from family to live in very austere and lonely confines. And that is to know Jesus and to follow him. Is this what... Jesus required of the rich young ruler? Is it what he requires of his disciples? Is it what he requires of you? Is the point of this passage asceticism, the harsh treatment of the body? The only way to be saved is to have a miserable existence. Of course not. The principle that comes out of this passage is contained in Jesus' comment on Peter's statement, Jesus' response to Peter. Right? Peter says they've left their own and followed him. Jesus responds with this encouragement. 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, you have left what is precious to you in order to follow me. And what you will find is is that even in this life, you will have more in me than you would have had in the most precious and significant things of this life. And then, of course, when all is said and done, you'll have eternal life. <laughs> like it's an afterthought. But the, the, in other words, Jesus, ha- having Jesus, having a place in the kingdom of God, having eternal life is so rewarding that any kind of sacrifice in this life is worth it. In fact, it's not really sacrifice. In fact, it's, any, it's easy, right? It's easy. If you have something that's of immense value, it's easy to give up which is that which is meaningless. So the principle is that nothing compares to the glory and comfort of knowing Jesus Christ. There is, there is nothing that a man can possess that makes him richer than having a place in the kingdom of God and knowing Jesus Christ. Right? Here's, here's how J.C. Ryle boiled it down. He said, the meaning is that the believer shall find in Christ a full equivalent for anything that he is obliged to give up for Christ's sake. That's putting it kind of weakly. He shall find such peace and hope and joy and comfort and rest in communion with the Father and the Son that he, his losses shall be more than counterbalanced by his gains. In short, the Lord Jesus Christ shall be more to him than property or relatives or friends. Do you know the riches of knowing Jesus Christ? Is that true to you? That he is your riches. He is your portion. He is your true wealth. Followers of the Son of God find the Son of God to be the summit of their joy. The focus, the, 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 the singular joy that makes all other joys just flat. You can, you know that the spiritual, I love when my wife sings it, you can have all this world, give me Jesus. Take it all, take all of its fleeting pleasures, take all of its wealth, take all of its power, take all of its offices, take all of its, you know, marble statues, take all of this stuff. I want what is true riches. I want what is unchanging and everlasting and eternal, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the song of the Christian. That's what Christians sing, right? Another song about the preeminent preciousness of of Jesus. Psalm 73, a few verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That is a challenging statement. Right? That is a rebuke. Right? Don't, think, don't think you should make that into a cross stitch. 
It's a rebuke to us. Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. My body might decay. I may get very sick. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are, are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So, let me, let me dig into this a little bit more. Let me say this. I'm not, talking, I'm not talking about contentment here. Okay. In other words, I've got Jesus, so I'm content with meager wages, I'm content with my old house, and I'm content with my ugly wife. That Contentment is godly. It's, it's good. It's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it does affect our minds and our hearts. But what I'm talking about here from this passage is more than contentment. What I'm talking about here is is coming to understand to have Jesus Christ, to know God, to see him as he really is, and that he is the, the, the full blessing that we have. He is the only thing that any man or woman or child needs. Okay, to, to have and enjoy peace with God the Father because of the redemptive work of the Son and its application to you by the Holy Spirit, that is stupendous riches. To have a regenerate heart, right, that is truly able to see with spiritual eyes the eternal power and glory of God Almighty, that should be extremely satisfying. Right, That should be like, who cares about everything else? That should be enough. Seeing and knowing the glory of the Son of God radically loosens our grip on everything else in this world, whether that's the best things of this world, like our, our precious families, our parents, our homes, our livelihood. Peter and those disciples did not lose. They didn't lose in leaving behind all that stuff, all those people. They gained immeasurable riches, manifold more, as the King James puts it. You know, no longer is the created world and anything in it the source of their joy, but the Creator behind all those gifts that He adds to them. Right, The creator behind all those things is the source of their joy. What Peter and those other disciples did is the common experience of those whose eyes have been opened up to the glory of Jesus Christ. Christians will sacrifice anything very easily if it hinders them from their reward, Jesus Christ. Or put another way, having Jesus is so overwhelmingly glorious that what was once so precious is now nothing. 
I keep coming back to this passage at various points in, in Philippians chapter 3, and, and likely it's because of, of the, the focus of the preaching of Jesus at this, this time, but um, Philippians 3, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What he once thought was so precious is not just nothing, it's loss. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, eh, refuse, that I may gain Christ. This is your experience, right? Because you know the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ. You're no longer hung up on fame and fortune and education and reputation and, and Facebook likes and the praise of men, right? Right? Because you know the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ. You're no longer the idolater that you once were. having put so much stock in the fleeting pleasures and investments of this world, right? Because you know the surpassing value of Jesus Christ, of gaining Christ, you've been freed from the burden of worshiping your mother or your father or especially your husband or your wife, which inevitably leads to conflict and disappointment, right? Because you know the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ. You don't need any more money, any more possessions, any more escapes, any more drugs, any more successes, right? Because you know what you have in Jesus. Oh, that should be the case, dear brothers and sisters. That should be the case. I have Jesus. I don't need anything else. If it is not the case, if you are running from this to that in this world in order to give you a sense of permanence, to give you a sense of importance, to give you a sense of satisfaction without going to the very one who made you, you're missing the forest for the trees. You're playing with those, those mud pies. You're colorblind. You're a deaf man at the concert hall. Right? The glory of Jesus Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all, the one whose light will make the sun superfluous. Do you know him? Something so glorious when seen truly cannot lead to, <laughs> it can't lead to half-hearted devotion. It can't lead to, to a tug-of-war in a half-devoted heart between the Creator and the creation. A tug-of-war between the corrupt glory of this world and the utterly pure and undefiled glory of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle prayed that his 
his flock would know this glory, would see with spiritual eyes this glory of Jesus Christ. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is all about the glory of Jesus, isn't it? And put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in in Hebrews 1, the same thing is said, right? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the irradiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Have you seen his glory? Have you seen the glory of Jesus? Do you know Jesus Christ? If so, the commendation that Jesus makes for for actions, the sacrifices for Peter and the disciples makes easy sense. The glory of knowing Jesus Christ, the power of knowing Jesus Christ, the riches of knowing Jesus Christ, the the unparalleled reward of knowing Jesus Christ makes the loss of everything else insignificant. And wonderfully true also, having Jesus Christ makes us a better lover and steward and enjoyer of all those other things. When we seek first his kingdom, all these other things that are precious to us are added to us. And they don't become idols. They don't become what we serve. They don't become our satisfaction. Only Jesus is that. Have you known someone who professed faith in Christ, but then turned their back on God? and turn their back on his church, when it became clear to that person that they would have to sacrifice something precious to them, that God would require that to be gone. The glory that that person, if they leave, if they turn away, the glory they saw in Jesus Christ paled in comparison with the glory that they saw in something in this world. I've seen men give up Christ for the glory of the opera. I've seen children give up Christ for the glory of of collegiate hedonism. I've seen rich men give up Christ for the glory of more. 
I've seen men give up Christ for the glory of the next high. Right? And getting drunk. The glory of the numbness that came with inebriation was better than the glory and satisfaction that they found in Jesus Christ. I've seen men give up Christ for the glory of political power. I've seen many give up Christ for the glory of sin. Right, the glory of those passing pleasures. I've seen many give up Christ for the glory of... Think of this. I've seen people give up Christ for the glory of having an intact and godless family. People who turn their back on the church because they would not divorce a husband. And perhaps you yourself today are weighing the glory of Christ with the glory of something else. You're just weighing it out. And if you do not know the glory of Jesus Christ and have a knowledge of the surpassing value of knowing him and gaining him, you'll go the route of the rich man, not the route of Peter and the disciples. You'll go the route of the rich man. You will turn from Jesus to your idol. You will weigh your options as if the glory of the things of this world can approach the glory of the Creator. Your evaluation, right? This, this, it might be written. It might, it might be you keep it on your notes on your, your phone, but you're, you're keeping it nonetheless in your head. Your evaluation will come back to you, and Jesus will not be at the top of your list. And you will decide to serve your spouse, not as you should, but as if he or she were a god or goddess. You'll serve your money, not as you should, but as if it was a god to you. You will serve your pleasures, not as you should, right, as God would allow you to in his redeeming grace, but as if those pleasures are your god. If You will serve your friends, not as you should, but as if they were... Your gods. And all the glory of those things will fade and die and disappoint. There's only one whose glory is an unfading glory, an eternal glory, a satisfying glory, and that's our triune God. That's God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think of Jesus' words to the woman at the well. At one point, she is weighing two different glories. And she's weighing out the glory of the water that would come from Jacob's well and the glory of this strange water that Jesus is, is offering to her. Right? John 4, picking up at 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so... She said to him, sir, 
You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So the woman asked for the water that Jesus gives eventually. And Jesus goes on, right, you remember, to work, work her over, work over her sins. But she is given spiritual eyes and she began to see the water of Jesus as more precious than the water in that well. That well that she boasted about. That understanding is what Jesus is commending in Peter and the disciples in our passage in Luke 18. When you know the full, the pure, the eternal majestic glory of the triune God, everything else, every created thing, every person, every object, every emotion, every relationship is put in its proper and lesser place. There is no sacrifice in following Jesus Christ. It is all gain. But your vision is clouded. You are still in your flesh and you need the constant reminder of the glory of God. And so rejoice in his perfections. Meditate upon his glories. Marvel at his handiwork in the creation. Right? Memorize and meditate on his word. Be settled and be fed in his church, in his household. Right? Speak of him. Witness of him, witness of his glory to others. Be dedicated to him in his worship. Stir yourself up for the purpose of worship. Don't come to worship tired. God is too glorious for half-hearted devotion. The Lord, I'll close with this, Psalm 113. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? That is the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the glory of God. It is your riches. Now live like it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we as Christians so often hang our heads and sing songs of woe. And then we see and are rebuked by the example of the apostles who suffered much more than us and yet rejoice that they were considered worthy of suffering for the sake of Jesus and his name. Oh Lord, I pray that you would reveal, continue to reveal yourself to us that you may be, that we may see your glory and, and, and 
that it would sink into our minds and our hearts, into our emotions, into our bodies, into our flesh, Father, into, into our eyes and ears and all of our senses, into our souls. And Father, that we would be, therefore, continually speaking of your glory, always grounded no matter what falls apart around us, no matter what glorious treasure we receive, everything will be in its proper perspective. And we will consider you our pearl of great price. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.